When elites misperceive the public, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Political elites are often accused of being out of touch with the American public, not recognizing how their views and conditions are not reflective of most people's experience and caught in their own bubbles. Prior research found that elites tend to overestimate conservative policy positions in the American public, but today's episode focuses on wider misperceptions across the political spectrum. This week, I talked to Alexander Furness of Northwestern University about his new paper with Tim Lapira, The People Think What I Think. He finds that unelected political elites, from government officials to lobbyists to media figures, all assume that public opinion more closely matches their own opinions than it really does. It's not just conservatives whose perceptions are off. Everyone overestimates how much the public agrees with them on policy issues. And elites might misperceive not only policy opinions, but also the circumstances the public faces. I also talked to Adam Thal of Loyola Marymount about his new British Journal of Political Science article, Do Political Elites Have Accurate Perceptions of Social Conditions? He finds that politicians overestimate the level of financial struggles facing their constituents, but correcting those misperceptions does not really change their opinions. Let's start with my interview with Furness which develops from research suggesting politicians have biased perceptions of public opinion. So tell us about the biggest findings and takeaways from your latest paper on elite perceptions of public opinion. I think the, the thing that was really striking to me about these findings is how consistent they are, right? So essentially, we, we find that across a whole range of uh, sort of policy issues, elites believe that the public's opinion is more in line with their own opinions than they actually are. Right. So when we ask, essentially, we ask the public, um, you know, in, a, in a, a likely voter survey that we conducted, how much they whether they support or oppose 10 different policy areas. And then we asked a set of elites in a, a, a similar survey. We asked them both whether they supported or opposed these policies and how popular, like what percentage of the population they believed um, supported those policies. And we found that for policies that elites themselves strongly favored, they overestimated public support by about 12 percentage points. And for um, policies that they themselves strongly opposed, they underestimated public support by about 12 percentage points. Um, so there's sort of a, a 20 to 25 um, percentage point difference in elite evaluations of public policy, depending on or of, of public support for policy, depending on whether the individual elite supports or strongly supports or strongly opposes that policy. Um, if they sort of weakly support or weakly oppose the finding, it's not their over underestimation isn't as strong, but it's in the same direction. And, you know, um, and so we found this is true across these policy issues. It's true across different types of elites. So it's true for, you know, um, uh, folks who work in political media, it's true for lawyers and lobbyists, it's true for law clerks and judges, it's true for state and local elected officials and, and state bureaucrats, it's true for bureaucrats in the federal government, right? So across a whole bunch of categories of political elites, it's true. Um, and then we did a bunch of things in this paper to try to say, like, you know, where might there be heterogeneity here? Is it is it is this effect stronger among like strong partisans and less so among weak partisans, because maybe there's some sort of kind of partisan echo chamber here where they think, oh, I'm a really strong partisan and these are 
policies that have some partisan valence to them. And so I'm kind of anchoring on my own co-partisans and nope, there's no difference based on the strength of partisanship. Um, one thing that we were really interested in was about how there are different professional norms across uh, uh, categories of elites about like how important one's partisanship is to their professional identity, right? If you're a congressional staffer um, or you are a, uh, you know, lobbyist that's has strong revolving door ties to the Democratic Party or something, right? There are a bunch of types of elites where like being partisan, if you're working campaigns, being a member of a political party is part of your job. And there are folks like law clerks or often political journalists who for them sort of they may have a private political identity or, or partisan identity, but there is a professional norm that that is separate from what your job is, you know? And so we had, we developed a, a question battery to measure that um, and thought maybe these effects are stronger among people whose professional partisan identity is, is um, really important to them. And, and there's no difference there either. Right. We, we kept coming up with sort of another was, well, maybe if you really trust uh, co-partisan information sources and really distrust uh, information sources from the other party or, or sort of other ideological perspective, look at the difference in your kind of partisan information trust. Um, so we didn't actually have a direct measure of information use, so we couldn't kind of directly measure kind of your information echo chamber stuff. So we looked at the trust, in, differential trust in partisan information sources to see if you're kind of more insular in that kind of way, does that lead to stronger effects? And again, it doesn't, right? It's sort of just every way we sliced it, this what we call a, a false consensus effect. Right. And it's not our term. That's a, a term out there from the literature. But what we we find going on here um, is essentially this really persistent and pretty substantively large false consensus effect where elites believe the public believes what they do. So tell us about uh, the prior uh, findings in this uh, literature that are mostly about um, politicians. Um, it seems like the this one is confirmation of part of that literature that there are these um, biases based on people's own opinions, but less uh, or less confirmatory of the other finding, which is that there's usually an overall conservative bias in public opinion, at least among politicians in the U.S. and elsewhere. So, um, yeah, how, how does your uh, research fit into that um, and how are you thinking about it? Yeah, that, so that's a great question. Um, you know, we were we were certainly um, inspired and, and motivated by some of those studies, um, right? There's the uh, uh, Brockman and Scavron piece and the um, uh, Millenberger, uh, Hurdle Fernandez, Stokes um, et al. piece. And yeah, they, they have tended to find, and, and there's been other work there too. Um, and yeah, the, those studies have shown this sort of conservative bias in perception of public opinion. Um, and those have been studies of elected officials or, or um, the, the um, Hurdle Fernandez et al. paper was um, congressional staff, but that's a very similar information environment to electeds right there, sort of serving as, as agents of elected principals. Um, and what we looked at here was unelected elites. So, uh, you know, it's, we're looking at a different population and we don't find that same kind of directional bias. Um, when we look at sort of aggregate differences across all issues, we find that, you know, Republicans overestimate conservatism a little bit and Democrats underestimate 
a little bit, right? Sort of more in line with the directional bias of their own their own opinions. Um, and I think that there's more work to be done here to try to reconcile these findings. Um, my hypothesis, which we don't test here, um, but I think is an interesting one for future work, is that there are important differences in the information environments that electeds operate in um, compared to unelected uh, political elites. And so in particular, I think um, elected officials have various channels to get feedback directly from the public. And those, you know, things, these are like the calls that their offices get, letters that are written to them, things that they see in town hall, you know, who, who shows up in town halls that they hear from, right? There are a bunch of ways that it's part of their job to hear from the public. Um, and that's not true for most, for unelected political elites, for the most part, right? They have reasons to want to care about public opinion because they want to know about, you know, the, the potential feasibility of policy recommendations they're going to make, or if they're advocating for particular policies to elected officials, if they're lobbyists or interest groups or something, they want to be able to try to speak with some authority about the political landscape that this is all operating in, but they don't have those same feedback mechanisms um, unless they're like commissioning polls or something, um, which is relatively rare because it's a, a resource intensive task. But I think that the types of feedback mechanisms that elected officials have, and, and this is stuff that's well-documented in the literature, tend to have biases on who shows up and how vocal different communities are. Right. So being politically engaged and vocal, um, you know, it correlates with uh, free time and resources. And so you tend to get sort of older, whiter, um, typically a little bit more well off people showing up to meetings. Right. Or, or being more engaged in those sorts of ways. And those populations skew conservative um, typically. Right. And so. I think that elected officials have these really important mechanisms of getting feedback from the public, but the sample of messages they get um, is from a, a population of people that skews conservative, and that that's a plausible explanation for why then you see a kind of conservative tilt in in elected estimates of public opinion. So tell us about um, these categories of, of political elites uh, that you surveyed, um, why it's important to understand their their views um, and how you got a hold of them. Sure. Um, so we used uh, Leadership Connect as the uh, contact list provider for the survey that we ran. Um, Leadership Connect is a sort of online directory that um, often serves for sort of like government affairs, political intelligence, kind of uh, relationship management stuff for corporations and, and lobbying organizations and things like that. Um, but it's grown out of what used to be the yellow books. Um, and so these were who used to be in the congressional yellow book, the the federal, you know, bureaucracy yellow book, these kinds of things. And now they've created one sort of integrated uh, contact list platform. Um, and so that's what we used as our uh contact list, we went through that and and they essentially have eight categories, eight verticals of, or what they call communities. And we essentially use their typology. Um, and so, you know, it's lawyers and lobbyists. Um, we ended up, I mean, this does not use the Congress because we were looking at unelected elites, but they have a Congress vertical, which is members and mostly staff. Um, yes, yeah, so lawyers and lobbyists, courts, that's uh, judges and clerks. Um, uh, federal bureaucracy, 
associations and nonprofits, which that's where like a, a lot of think tankers and things are. And these are all sort of, it's not all associations and nonprofits in the country. We were looking at sort of DC, Maryland, Virginia based. I mean, they, their whole focus of the directory is on kind of folks adjacent to government, um, government relations. Um, and so that's where we started. We went through their directory and picked sort of job responsibility and job title categories that we felt were sufficiently senior. So these are people who like head programs are, there's also a, a corporation thing. So these are C-suite people or people who head the government, government affairs departments of corporations, um, you know, executives at nonprofits, um, we also included for, for the sort of nonprofit think tank vertical, we included like research fellow type of things. Um, and so, yeah, we went through sort of for each vertical and sort of set a threshold of what's the level of seniority and, and job responsibility that we think falls within um, the, the scope of what we're considering political elites here. And, you know, that's all kind of stuff that's detailed in the appendix of the paper, of course. Um and that left us with a, a pretty good contact list that we reached out to. Um, and we think that this is a really important population because uh, there's a lot of agenda setting that happens in in federal policymaking, right? There's like, you know, only a few things make it onto the agenda at any given time. There are and, you know, uh, policy windows open idiosyncratically and then people try to move on things and. And so there are lots of folks in the background kind of trying to push things onto the agenda, making the case that things are important um, or sort of building up portfolios of evidence or policy proposals, possible solutions that can kind of go into the, the garbage can, um, you know, model when when that window actually opens. Right. And um, and we think the opinions of those folks doing all that stuff, even if they're not the ones actually doing the voting or informing those who do the voting, the actual legislators. um when the time comes, they're all sort of creating the information environment in which that's going to happen, right? And making the case for why some things are important and others aren't, or why some solutions are are sort of considered reasonable and things we should be looking at and other solutions aren't. Um, and so what those folks think are a big part of that, we believe. And so it matters then if those folks have a reasonable perception of what the public is going to want or not. If we expect or hope for some form of democratic responsiveness, kind of all of the parts of this sort of policy knowledge, production, advocacy, um, ecosystem or environment, all of those parts are are sort of combining to make that happen. And if, if some of them have really distorted views of what the public wants, we should have lower expectations for um, kind of responsiveness, right? And we see you know, all the time, right? Pundits and, and pundits are like a subclass of people that show up in this data, right? We, we political journalists and opinion columnists, you know, opinion writers were part of our sampling frame. And all the time we see in major media outlets, pundits making the case that like something is radical or something's too far is not, is not a reasonable policy option or the voters won't like it, or they should be paying more attention to what Trump voters think about this or what Biden, you know, who are the constituencies we should be listening to. And, those are all informed by their implicit assumptions of who is the public and what do they think and what do they believe? And turns out a lot of those people probably think the public believes what they believe or much closer to what they believe than they actually do. So we should maybe be um, a little incredulous when folks are making those kinds of claims that we see made in public a lot. 
So uh, one explanation for this is elites aren't any different than anyone else. And this is just a classic of human psychology. Um, is that your view or is there are there other reasons why these elites, uh, maybe their personal incentives uh, or their social networks uh, might be, um, you know, per either particularly bad at this or, or might not be a, might have something that uh, goes against uh, another mechanism that might have moved them closer to the truth? Sure. Yeah, that's also a really great question. I think it's it's a little bit of both, right? Um, I'm generally of the belief that elites are people like everybody else, and we all have some of the, we all have basically the same set of cognitive tools. Um, and you know, we we've, we've developed various um, over, you know, through evolution and through we've lots of we use these heuristics because our information environments are too complicated and we're cognitively bounded and so we engage with the world through a bunch of various kinds of heuristics and those lead to biases sort of no matter what right and and we got to work with what we have um and that elites are like everybody else and so i expect that this is you know we see in the literature there are false consensus effects observed in the normal population all the time right so i don't think in some sense i don't think this is any different than that um I do think that there is sometimes a belief that elites are different, that they're you know more highly educated, they're more, um, they pay more much more attention to these kinds of issues than the general public does, um, and so we should maybe hope or expect for better from them. And I do think they're they're I mean their perceptions of public opinion are probably better than the we didn't ask these same questions we didn't ask the the public to estimate how popular these things were in the public, but elites are probably better than um than the public if i had to guess um although still pretty bad um but sometimes the sort of higher political sophistication or higher education you know various things of tweets can push in the other direction right they can be better at rationalizing um their own beliefs they can be better at coming up with sort of counter arguments for counter attitudinal information um and so you know, I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit of an open question to me, um, how those play off against each other, right? They're, they're certainly more aware of salient policy issues and paying more attention than the average voter, but they're also, I think, better at um, telling themselves compelling stories to justify their own positions. So you said uh, you didn't quite find a coherent kind of here's who's bad and here's who's better um, at these kinds of perceptions. Um, but what differences did you find across issues or across uh, parties uh, or across occupations? Yeah, so really, it was mostly a story of no differences across across parties, occupations, um, you know, uh, political information preferences, uh, you know, professional norms. Um, it's really a consist of a, a quite universal effect is, is what we tended to find. So, you know, when we look at the variance by issue here or, or sort of differences in, in how accurate folks are, um, both democratic and Republican elites underestimate, uh, how popular sort of, uh, clean energy subsidies for low income folks are, um, but overestimate the popularity of a carbon tax, for example. Um, they overestimate uh, the popularity of a pathway to citizenship, both Republicans and Democrats, um, and underestimate the popularity of a wealth tax. Uh, for most other other issues, we see 
um, that we pulled, we see Republicans underestimating um, the popularity of a progressive policy and Democrats overestimating and vice versa, right? Usually we see kind of partisan um, asymmetry there where, you know, people overestimate co-partisan opinions and underestimate the popularity of outpartisan opinions or outpartisan policies. Um, but for those couple issues, both Democrats and Republicans are, are wrong in the same direction. So you, you have also done a lot of work on uh, legislative staff, uh, and some of it tries to explain some of these previous findings um, among uh, elected officials. So, so tell us about that and how you're thinking about um, information environments uh, that uh, political elites have as a, as a possible reason for, for some of these biases. Sure. Um, yeah, so I've done a couple of surveys prior to, prior to this one, um, did a few surveys of just congressional staff. And ask them a bunch of questions about what information they use and trust, um, and you know a bunch of other th- things about their political knowledge and their, you know, um, uh, career trajectories and things like that. Um, and in in a, con- a, a sort of theme of my work in that er- in those areas is that I'm particularly interested in sort of differential use and trust of partisan information sources. Right. So to what degree are um, in this case, congressional staffers, often committee staffers who are essentially tasked with providing uh, their members with policy briefs and, you know, um, questions for committee hearings or recommendations on how to vote, these types of things. How much are they drawing from just ideologically consonant sources? And um, to what extent is that maybe part of polarization that we see um, and things like that? And and we do find uh, consistently really strong um, selection of partisan sources over nonpartisan sources, or certainly over outpartisan sources, um, and that's true both kind of at the aggregate um, when we look at just categories of sources, and also when we kind of look at individual uh, sources, look at, at specific think tanks and things like that. Um, we've done that both sort of observationally, um, just asking batteries of. Um, of, you know, how much do you trust or use these different sources? And also in survey experiment settings, we've done uh, sort of a vignette experiment um, and a couple conjoint experiments where um, the, the conjoints aren't published yet, but the um, uh, vignette was at um, PRQ, I think, a couple years ago. Um, and yeah, there's a, a sort of large effect on of how much a staffer is likely to use an information source if it comes from an aligned source. In the conjoint experiments, we manipulated both the ideology of the source and of, uh, or sort of the, this, the ideology signaled by the source and also the ideological content of the message. And we find that there's, the results are, it's about the same magnitude of seeing a consonant message or a consonant source. And they operate pretty independently of each other. Um, it's about... Uh, uh, 15 percentage points more likely to, to choose that source. So part of the um, explanation for some of the previous findings among uh, uh, elected officials um, was, uh, or part of the proposed explanation was that these networks among staffers and the, um, and the, the reliance on conservative sources among, um, among staffers um, that might inform their, their, uh, their elected officials. 
Um, but there has been a, a change in the infrastructure on the left um, a, as well. Um, so I wonder if you would comment on, you know, the possibility that maybe the information environments um, have have become uh, bubbles <laughs> on both sides uh, now as one as one potential explanation for your findings. That is, maybe these people are just seeing a lot of issue polls where their side wins um, that, because there's a, a pretty big infrastructure for kind of uh, uh, doing that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. Um, on it's another another set of another sort of working paper um, that we're doing at my center right now is looking at at citations to think tanks between each other, um, and over time, and we see that uh, sort of liberal think tanks cite nonpartisan or neutral think tanks. I mean, obviously these boundaries are a little bit squishy, but. Um, there's much more sort of policy to policy citations between um, liberal and and neutral or centrist think tanks than there is between than there are between um, conservative and centrist or neutral think tanks. Um, so I still think, at least insofar as the kind of think tank network is indicative of the of the information infrastructure environment, and it's obviously only part of of that world. But at least insofar as that's concerned, I think the the sort of ecosystem on the right is still a little bit more isolated. Um, but but I think you're right to note that that trend is that that is less so now than it used to be. Right. That that there is a little bit more of this um, separation. Um, and I think that both sides seeing issue polls that tend to support their own conclusions could be part of the story that we have here. Um, although we do, you know, in, in this study, we do look at indiv individual variation, not just party. And so, you know, insofar as there are folks for that to be entirely the explanation, everyone would just have to have consonant partisan opinions. Um, and there's a decent amount of variance in there, um, because we're, we're exploiting within, within, uh, within respondent variance across issue areas. Um, cause there are, there are individual fixed effects essentially in, in the models, um, that soak up kind of the partisanship component. So one, um, one potential implication of that is that you could have some issues, um, where there, where it isn't just elite partisan disagreement, but elite disagreement with the public where elites would not necessarily perceive that um, agreement. So like classic examples are on like foreign policy, like free trade, um, where elites on both sides are more um, in favor than their um, uh, than than the public on each side. So um, any sign of that in the data and any um, comment on kind of that implication that because it's not just pure polarization in your paper, it might mean that elites uh, are insulated from public opinion, even when there's kind of an elite opinion that's different than the public opinion. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think that's what we see for issues like carbon tax or wealth tax, right? Is that elites are all on the same side in their misperceptions of the public. Um, and I bet if we selected, if we tried to select only issues where we believe that that's true, right? Um, and so, you know, some of these foreign policy issues are a great example as well. Uh, I bet we would still see the same the same results that we see here, um, where they would all overestimate things that they themselves support, right? That if um, 
you know, I, I think we see more support for a wealth tax um, or for a car, more, more support for a carbon tax, rather. Uh, they underestimate the wealth tax support because they mostly don't support wealth tax and they overestimate carbon tax support because more elites support carbon taxes than the public. Um, and that's true in both parties. You know, Democrats relatively more, but even Republican elites more than the public um, because, you know, those that's a kind of market mechanism for dealing with a problem that um, tends to be appealing to elites. So, yeah, I think, you know, it, the, when it's at the level of individual support for a policy, that can happen for a policy leading to overestimation of public support for that policy, that can happen regardless of partisan differences, right? It can be everybody supports it more or one party supports it more and one party supports it less. While Furness pursues the traditional analysis of policy opinions, Adam Thal wondered whether politicians are out of touch in another way. Maybe they don't know the economic problems their constituents are facing. But the results surprised him. They actually overestimated those economic problems. So what are the uh, biggest uh, findings and takeaways uh, from your new article on uh, elite perception of social conditions? Sure. So I think the big takeaways relate to this idea that a lot of people have that politicians are out of touch with reality, particularly with respect to economic problems. I think we have this idea that politicians don't understand a lot of problems faced by low-income people in the United States. Um, I don't find that that is true. Um, so I find very little evidence that politicians underestimate problems faced by the poor. If anything, they tend to overestimate the scale of those problems. So tell us more concretely what you were up to here. Who were you talking to? Uh, what did you ask them? Uh, and how did you uh, confirm these, uh, this view? Sure. So I started off trying to understand um, part of what might explain, broadly speaking, political inequality in the United States. So we know we have this pattern with policymakers where they tend to make policy decisions that benefit the rich um, and go against the interests of the poor. That doesn't always happen, but it does happen maybe more often than not in American politics. And so I wanted to help us understand why. Uh, why do politicians sort of ignore problems facing low-income people in the United States? And so I wanted to basically look at one potential mechanism that could help to explain that, which is the idea basically that politicians are out of touch, um, that they do not understand the scale of problems affecting low-income people in the country. Um, I think there's good reasons to expect that that would be the case, right? Politicians on the whole are much more affluent than the average person. And so there's good reason to think that because they don't experience a lot of economic problems themselves, they might underestimate the scale of those problems, not really understand how bad things are for low-income families. And maybe that could explain sort of why they're not doing all that much to address these problems. So that was the, the theory. To actually test that theory, um, I worked with a number of colleagues who were working on their own projects to field a survey of state legislative candidates. Um, so these were politicians running for, um, basically running in primary elections um, in 2018 for state uh, legislative offices. Um, and I basically surveyed these folks um, and I tried to do two things. One is I tried to measure their perceptions of the scale of problems affecting low-income people in the states where they're running for office. Um, and then I also ran this experiment to see, you know, if we correct those perceptions and get them more in line with reality, will that change how they feel about policy? 
what is the kind of level of um, economic insecurity that Americans were facing in these in these places, and what was the what were the levels expected by by the politicians? Sure. So I looked at three different problems, right? So one is the level of financial insecurity. Another is their ability to access healthcare, and another is their ability to uh, pay for higher education. So all three of these problems, generally speaking, are, are reasonably severe. So we can focus just on the problem of financial insecurity. So, you know, there's a statistic out there that 40% of Americans don't have enough money on hand to cover a $400 emergency expense, right? So they're totally unprepared uh, for any kind of financial emergency. So the actual level of these problems is quite high. Um, and I asked politicians sort of like, what are their perceptions of these problems in the state to get a sense of whether they understand that reality. And then before we uh, get to the before we get to the experiment, let's talk a little bit more about kind of how this fits into to previous uh, work. So a lot of previous work on elite um, misperceptions, including uh, another interview for this episode, um, is about misperceptions of policy positions of mm -hmm. the public. Um, and it has found, um, as you know, that uh, elites uh, kind of think the public thinks more like they do, um, and also in some cases that there might be a conservative bias. Uh, in their perceptions of public opinion compared to real uh, issue opinion. Um, so kind of fit what you're doing in with that um, literature, and do you think um, it's kind of consistent or inconsistent with the findings there? Sure. So I was very much inspired by that literature, which shows that politicians, including the same kind of politicians that I'm surveying, um, like candidates for state legislature, they tend to uh, misperceive public opinion and they have this conservative bias. Uh, that kind of inspired this paper, I would say. So I expected to find something similar, which would be in this case that politicians potentially underestimate um, like the severity of problems affecting low-income people, and that that could help to also explain a potential conservative direction in their views of like social policies. Um, I, I did not find that to be the case. So I think it's inconsistent with that literature in the sense that that literature shows like misperceptions that lead to a potential conservative direction in policymaking. Um, I find, I think that politicians' perceptions of something different, like their the reality in their state in terms of like these economic issues, is is potentially more accurate. Like I don't I don't find large scale misperceptions, um, and so I don't. It basically doesn't seem to translate to this other part of their perceptions of the world. But there was one part that seemed to to match, which was um, that there are partisan differences, and they kind of uh, track, you know, how much uh, the parties want to do about these issues. Is that right? Yes. So the part that does match up is so I think that the other literature on perceptions of public opinion does suggest large partisan differences. So that could help to explain, you know, elite polarization. I definitely do find that too, right? So there's definite polarization. Uh, Democrats in particular tend to really overestimate the scale of these economic problems. Republicans are less likely to overestimate them and in some conditions underestimate them. So there's definitely the sense where Democrats and Republicans have this different perception of reality. 
And part of the uh, literature uh, looks at elite misperceptions as just similar to public misperceptions. We all have cognitive biases and elites would have them as well. And part of it kind of expects them to be different um, for elites than, than the public, that they're in some kind of information environment that might be leading them astray. Uh, anything to say, say about that? Is this a case where actually the biases kind of match in the public? We think we're doing better than most people uh, economically. So, you know, it might sort of match a basic public misperception? So I have looked a little bit at this in the mass public, and generally speaking, I found pretty similar results, um, which is to say that among the mass public, I also don't find some like major tendency to really underestimate these problems. And there's the same partisan divide where like Democrats think they're worse, Republicans think they're better. Um, so I, I do think that there's a sort of kind of elites are maybe not so different from the general public in this sense. I will say that there's one important exception to that, um, which is I did find this one instance where Republican politicians underestimate how many people in their state are financially insecure. That was kind of the one finding I found that aligned with my theory. And I was able to provide some evidence about what might produce those misperceptions, um, which is that they may be rooted in Republican politicians' social networks. So politicians, including Republican politicians, are more affluent than normal people. Politics also creates this environment in which, like, if they want to win elections, they have to be with donors all the time. Um, they're incentivized to spend time with rich people too, right? So they're affluent people who are very incentivized to spend time with the affluent. Um, and I find that there's a sort of correlation between what they are seeing in their social networks and their tendency to underestimate financial um, insecurity. So it does appear in this one instance that like this might be an elite thing where elites are in this bubble and that leads them to underestimate this particular problem. So we're speaking at a time when there's a big divergence between um, objective economic indicators and people's kind of subjective feelings about the economy. Um, and there are some people who say uh, maybe actually the subjective feelings are worth giving more uh, weight weight to. So I know you've asked people to give, um, you know, to, to give to estimates of, of things that we have real real data for. Um, but is it possible that we're just, um, that, they, that the subjective estimates are also worthwhile and maybe they're just thinking about general problems that people are having with healthcare or education or economic security that may go beyond uh, the scope of the, the data that you're comparing it to? Yes. So basically, you know, if I were to have to make a choice, like what do I think matters most for these people's policy views, like their subjective perceptions of the problem or the actual reality, I think it's the subjective perceptions of the problem. Um, and if you were to look at this data, you would find that like their subjective perceptions are really highly correlated with their policy opinions. Like it just sort of make sense. Like if people have to make these policy decisions in their head, like what's going to shape those decisions is their subjective view of the problem. Um, it just so happens that in this particular circumstance, like the subjective perceptions are often not that far off from the reality. And just to re-ask that one more way, is it possible that the, that actually the I won't say the objective data is wrong, but incomplete in such a way that maybe they should perceive it as a little bit more severe than um, than the objective data do. Like maybe they're just thinking about um, problems that people have in accessing healthcare or higher education that are more severe than the data might 
So if we think about my findings in relation to what's going on right now, which is this idea that like, you know, based on what economists are saying, the economy is doing fairly well, but people don't perceive that. Um, they're really waiting sort of a, the negative news that they see and perceive things to be potentially much worse than they actually are. Um, it's interesting that I find something similar here. Like people have maybe just this negative prism on the economy and, and tend to just overestimate how bad things are. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, that that's happening both across elites. And I think we see it now with voters in the um, election. Yeah. And were there any differences across your three areas that are uh, worth uh, highlighting? Or was it pretty much the same consistent findings across areas and the people that you were uh, asking? Sure. Yeah. So there were some interesting differences, right? So I think the most interesting thing to think about is that of these three problems, which related again to like financial insecurity, unaffordable healthcare, and access to higher education, the one that politicians were most likely to overestimate with was access to higher education. I think why that's potentially interesting is like we might think of that one as being the most sort of like affluent. They overestimated the problem or they overestimated the access? They overestimated how difficult it was for people in the state to access higher education. And they thought that like people were going into more debt to get into college than they actually were. Um, So they overestimated the scale of the problem. Um, I think what's potentially interesting about that is like of the three problems, that is the most like upper middle class problem that I measured, right? Because it's like who is most likely to attend college, it's upper middle class affluent people. And so it kind of aligns with this social network perspective. Like I, I can easily imagine that that is the problem they're most exposed to in their social network. And maybe that's why they thought that that problem, they were the most likely to overestimate the scale of that problem. So you talked a little bit about the media environment as one uh, source of um, misperceptions. Um, and I know that there's been uh, some work on that uh, before. Um, but what are the other candidates? Um, are these are these is it plausible that the media environment is just too negative in all three of these areas? Um, is there a reason why people are better able to update um, in these areas than than others? Um, or is there another source uh, of these misperceptions? Sure. So I think one way to think about that is, you know, politicians are more affluent than the average person. So a, a question we can think about is like, how might they learn about these problems anyway, even if they are not experiencing them? So I think the primary candidates there would be the media environment, but then also, you know, potentially hearing from constituents. We might expect that Democrats would be especially likely to hear from constituents who are struggling financially. Um, so that could explain why they um, are most likely to overestimate these problems. I think those are probably the two main ways that they actually learn about these things, like the media through their constituents. Um, I think also it's useful to consider sort of like how psychological biases might play a role in sort of like leading them to overestimate the scale of these problems. And it kind of gets back to this idea that um, maybe, you know, if you're thinking about this and you're uncertain about what the right answer is, the there's sort of less cost to potentially overestimating the problem than underestimating the problem, right? So if we if we underestimate the problem and we don't do anything about it, um, that's potentially a really you know painful negative thing for society. But if we overestimate the problem and maybe do too much, like that seems less painful and potentially less negative for you as a 
politician. And so there could be some sort of psychological bias that I'd, I'd rather overestimate than underestimate. And is that a reasonable normative take as well, that on the one hand, we, we want people to have uh, true views of the world, but on the other hand, uh, the these are problem solvers. Uh, so maybe it's good that they uh, overestimate or at least are very attentive to uh, people having problems. Yes. So I, I think the there's a it's like a two part answer. I think at a baseline, like normatively, I'd rather have politicians overestimate the problem than underestimate the problem. But I think the second part is that I think the consequences of overestimating the problem might be complicated. So we can imagine one world in which, you know, politicians overestimate these problems and maybe do too much, but like that doesn't seem to be the actual world we're living in. Like we wouldn't say that politicians are doing too much in the United States to address these problems. So another possibility is that you could overestimate the problem and then come to the conclusion that it's unsolvable because it's so bad in your subjective perception. Um, so you don't do anything about it, right? So you could potentially see this link between thinking the problem is worse than it is and then concluding that it's it's hopeless. Um, and so maybe there's this kind of equilibrium level where they don't sort of go too high, don't go too low, and that allows them to think it's in this sweet spot where, oh, we could actually address this. Um, and maybe overestimating it kind of leads to this conclusion that it's hopeless. So let's talk a little bit about the experiment um, because you did, you're able to kind of observe what happens when you inform mm -hmm. people um, more. And it, it did seem consistent also with the elite perceptions of public opinion research, which, which also finds that um, e even if you think these are a source of opinions of elites, it doesn't seem to change their opinions when they, when they are given more information in the course of the survey. Is that right? Yes, right. So what I did in my particular study was um, after asking them their perceptions of these issues, I essentially gave them accurate information. I said, you know, basically, you know, you said that you thought the scale of the problem was this, but the actual scale of the problem is this. Um, and then I measured a range of like policy views that relate to potential solutions to the problem, right? So you know, after being told that you misperceive financial insecurity, like does that change your views of increasing spending on welfare? Broadly speaking, I did not find um, that it changed politicians' policy views. Um, and so the main conclusion is, right, even to the, even they're like, they, they misperceive these problems to some extent, but even when they have the accurate information, it doesn't appear to change their views. Um, which suggests that to the extent that these misperceptions exist, they're not a major determinant of their policy views. So, um, so that should cause us to, to reevaluate um, kind of the, the, the role of this in, in policymaking. Um, is, is it fair to say that we kind of consistently think these things are inputs to people's policy positions, but, but often they're just, they follow more from the policy positions than uh, actually change them? So I think based on this evidence, um, it does not, it sort of speaks to the idea that just like having an accurate understanding of the problem um, is not going to shift their policy views one way or another. So it, it suggests that like their subjective perceptions of the problem may be less important, for example, than um, their perceptions of public opinion, their own personal views of like, is this a good policy or a, a bad policy? Um, what helps them get reelected, essentially. 
uh, might matter more than their subjective perception of reality. So the in other studies where uh, people are asked uh, to estimate things, there's often just basic problems with numeracy. Um, in particular, for example, people overestimate um, the percentage of people who are X, Y, and Z in small populations in, uh, in the public. Um, is it possible that part of it is just we're expecting too much kind of precision or understanding of what these kinds of data would look like? Sure. So I think that's a very real problem where people just might not be that good at thinking about numbers and sort of forming realistic estimates in their mind. I think two reasons I'm not super concerned about with this particular study is like one, that these are elites, um, right? So they're more knowledgeable about politics than the typical person. They're more highly educated. And so if anyone's capable of thinking through this, um, you know, hopefully it should be these people. Um, and the other thing I would say is that um, even though I did find like that there's this tendency to overestimate these problems, there's still like quite a few instances where politicians are strikingly, strikingly accurate on average, um, you know, where they come within five or 10 points of reality. Um, so they appear, you know, they get it wrong sometimes, but they get it right a lot of times too. And so um, I'm, I feel pretty confident in these people's ability to, to kind of reason through this. And you said that there were um, some differences based on their kind of prior opinions on these issues. Um, what, was there any other differentiation among the state legislative candidates, like the ones that were incumbents uh, or the ones that had more prior experience? Any Anything that makes people better at estimating? Okay. Yeah. So I think that the most interesting result that I found um, was that the most interesting differentiation between different kinds of politicians was that the results of the experiment where I kind of corrected their misperceptions and looked at their policy views were stronger for more experienced office holders. Um, so in the sense that more experienced politicians who like potentially actually are already in office, um, they are more likely to change their policy views in response to being provided with accurate information, which I, I found interesting um, and maybe even a little bit encouraging, right? That politicians who are maybe like successful and experienced, they kind of take this information a little bit more seriously. That the sample size for those politicians is, is quite small. And so I think it's it's hard for me to, you know, put a ton of faith in that finding. But but if anything, it's basically that more experienced politicians are more likely to take the information seriously and incorporate it into their policy views. What would you say the implications are for activists or for people who would like uh, policy change in in these areas? Um, on the one hand, you know they spend a lot of time uh, trying to convince politicians that a problem that they're interested in is large um, and important and severe. Um, maybe this is evidence that some of that in, some of that gets through. Um, on the other hand, you found that it doesn't really change policy views. Sure. Um, so. I think that's a really good question. So I think we we might like to imagine or activists might like to imagine that the solution to the problem is information, right? If I can just make it clear to you as a policy maker, like that this problem is really bad, you will be motivated to do something about it. The implication of this study is like that that will not work or is unlikely to work, right? Just providing information or making an argument about the scale of the problem. Um, isn't likely to change politicians' policy views. That could be because they already overestimate the problem to begin with. 
Um, it could be because that's just like not an important input for them in terms of making policy. And so if I were to suggest an alternative strategy, it would be instead to think about how to change the political calculus of trying to solve the problem, right? So the argument you want to make is not look how bad this problem is. It's um, look how much you have to gain politically by solving this problem. Um, I don't have evidence that that would work instead, but it, it seems like a better direction potentially than just like, look how bad the problem is. And how did this make you think about the elite perceptions uh, research area moving forward? Um, on the one hand, you found another category of elite misperceptions that, that do exist. Um, but uh, on, on the other, um, you've kind of found another reason why they, they might not really be the source of um, the kinds of policy outcomes uh, that, that we get. Um, so how much should we keep studying this and, and where would we go next? Sure. So I absolutely do think we should keep studying this. I think studying elites um, is much can be much harder than just studying average voters because it takes a lot more effort. I have found to to survey these people. Right? We can't just uh, pay you know some people online to take the survey like we do typically. Um, and I think there's just so much to gain from studying these people who are actually in charge of making policy decisions. Um, I think. Also, just because like my hypotheses in this particular study didn't work out, like I, I don't think that that discounts the, the value of the study or the value of this approach to research, right? It's useful to learn, you know, test a mechanism and find that it works and helps to explain things. It's also, it's also useful to test a mechanism and find that it, it doesn't work and doesn't really appear to be playing a role. You know, it allows us to have a informed conversation about like we're having right now about, you know, if it's if it's not this, what else might it be? What's the next thing we can look at? And so I I really hope that we keep doing this kind of research. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, linked on our website. How to Change Americans' Views of Inequality, Teaching and TV. Does anyone speak for the poor in Congress? Why rising inequality doesn't stimulate political action. Why donor opinion distorts American democracy. And when public opinion goes to the ballot box. Thanks to Xander Furness and Adam Thal for joining me. Please check out The People Think What I Think and Do Political Elites Have Accurate Perceptions of Social Conditions? And then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.